Well, again, we're handling just one stanza of Psalm 119 this morning. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 652. Again, 81 through 88. And just kind of orient ourselves to what is taking place here within this stanza of the longest chapter of God's Word, this longest song by the psalmist David, is, is he begins to turn his attention to some affliction in which he is experiencing and has experienced within the course of his life. And actually, he, he kind of demands for us to understand that in these dark afflictions, in these deepest moments or deepest circumstances of life, how are we to act as a Christian? How are we to suffer well in the extremes of grief, in the extremes of persecution, in the extremes of suffering? What is our response? How are we to hold on to God? And so David begins to talk about the, the depression, the, the anguish, the enemies that rise up against him, and yet he says the Christian is faithful to the law and trustful in his God. If you just notice in your bulletin, the, the, the title of the sermon is The Surety of God's Promises. That's what David will begin to focus on. He, even in the, the deepest moments of affliction in his life, he will say, the Lord has promised certain things to me and I have found them sure. I have found my Lord faithful, and therefore I will trust in Him. Many different commentators say many different things about this portion of God's Word, but let me just kind of just set our eyes on what we're going to tackle here. There's a, a great Scottish commentator on the Psalms. His last name is Davidson, and this is what he says. The mood of this psalm of lament comes strongly to the forefront of this section. The psalmist is struggling to come to terms with a crisis in his life. He has cried out to God, but the answer is not yet. He is near the end of his tether, exhausted, waiting, uncertain of whether the Lord's comfort will come like Job. He can think of no justification for what is happening to him. He is the Lord's faithful servant, persecuted without cause by the arrogant who thinks nothing of the Lord's word and who are out to trap him. All he can do is hold on, believing that the faithfulness of his Lord, which he associates and learns from his word, stands in contrast to the falsehood of all of his persecutors. That's what David Dickinson Says And so with that in mind, I want to pray first and then read, read from God's Word, 81 through 88. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to this Word. And we know, O oh Lord, that the life of the Christian has its ups and downs, and the valleys of life seem so deep and bleak. And yet... We pray that the psalmist David this morning would encourage us to keep our eyes on your salvation, to keep our hearts set upon the promises of the Scriptures that are declared to us in our Bibles, 
that we might know them, so that we might pray them and plead them back to you, so that we might hold on in the deepest valleys of this life. Would you encourage us this morning? Would you show us that the Christian way is, despite the circumstances, to trust in you and to keep your law? And would this be a a real beacon of good works that might shine itself out to a world that needs hope, to a world that needs correction, to a world that needs Christ. And so, through our words and through our actions, would you use this text to make us better witnesses for your name? We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen and amen. Well, this psalm and this section of this psalm is all about the believer in trials and affliction and even persecution. His soul longs for the Lord. He's waiting for God's deliverance. And even though he's languishing, even though he feels dried up and worn out, David clings to the Lord's word and he trusts in his God. Hear how he does this in verses 81 through 88. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They Do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, as the psalmist David talks about how we are to submit to the Lord in affliction and in suffering, I don't think that we look any farther than the perfect example of submitting to God's will in the midst of suffering and persecution and anguish than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. If you think about the words of of Hebrews chapter 5, specifically there in verse 7, it talks about the Lord and it says, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Now, if you'll note something there in that verse that I just read to you, it speaks of Jesus in the flesh. We affirm that God came down in the form of Jesus Christ Fully man, He took upon for Himself flesh just as we have flesh. And He cried out, He pled out to the Father in heaven so that He might be saved from the the death that awaited Him. And, And yet, one of the things that you also need to note is that in that verse, it says that He prayed to Him, talking about the Father in heaven, who was able to save him from this death. As he cried out to the Father there in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know that he prayed to a God who could have allowed this cup 
of wrath to pass from His Son, Jesus Christ? But of course the answer was no. And then on the cross, Jesus prays or He calls out in anguish and lament, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in fact, the Father in heaven does not answer Him at all. Both of these circumstances, both of these things, the Lord Jesus had to submit Himself to God. And it's that submission to God that we must understand is really a secret of the Christian life. When we think about the Christian life as a pilgrimage through this sin-wearied and sin-tainted land, we must understand that there is persecution, anguish, suffering to be experienced. It's a consequence of our world being broken by sin. And a secret of the Christian life is to submit willingly and fully to God in the midst of those hard circumstances. And you might say, well, Matt... That's all well and good, but how do you do it? Well, here in verses 81 through 88, David tells us four things, four ways, in which we humbly and willfully and fully submit to God's providence, God's sovereignty, even when it brings about hard circumstances. If you look back at just the very first verse that we read, verse 81 The first part of verse 81, it simply says, My soul longs for your salvation. First thing that we need to understand is in hard circumstances of life, in suffering and anguish and persecution, we must understand, we must know, we must only long for the Lord's salvation. The way that David writes here in verse 81a, he is saying that there is no other way out that I want from these hard circumstances other than your way, O Lord. Have you ever been in a hard circumstance? Have you ever been suffering or in anguish, deep depression, maybe anxiety, maybe even persecution, and you said something like, any way out will do. I'll do anything I can to get out of this situation. And yet, beloved, what David says is that right submission to God does not say that. Right submission to God does not say, I will do whatever I can to get out of this hard circumstance. Right submission to God says, Lord, the way that you want to deliver me from this circumstance, the way that you want to save me from this suffering or persecution, that is the only way that will do if you've been in one of those hard circumstances and you have found a way in and of yourself to try to escape those hard circumstances, you know it's kind of like walking out of the frying pan and into the fire, don't you? Usually when we try to come up with a way to get us out of a hard situation, a suffering situation, we walk out of the frying pan into the fire. We either sin in our Uh, attempts to escape, are trying to escape, or we either make the situation, the circumstance that much worse. And why is that usually the case? It's because we haven't submitted ourselves to the ways, to the deliverance, to the salvation of our Lord. So you see the psalmist who's anchoring himself, even in this first part of this stanza, in verse 81, he is anchoring himself to God's sovereignty. 
to the same sovereignty, to the same providence in which has brought him to this low point. He is putting himself fully trusting in the Lord's ways, and he's saying, not any old way of deliverance is going to work for me. I must be delivered by my God. It's your deliverance, O Lord, your salvation that I want, that my soul longs for. I don't want to manufacture it. I don't want to go in my own way. I'm just going to simply wait for your deliverance. And of course, if you've been in that situation where you've said the same things with the psalmist David, I'm not going to do anything to try to get out of this hard circumstance on my own. I'm going to wait for the salvation of the Lord. You know that the salvation of the Lord transcends anything and everything that we could have done on our own. His salvation that awaits for us in the midst of these hard circumstances, it is always the best deliverance, the best salvation. If you just remember how David writes at the very beginning of this psalm, he says that the way of blessedness, that's on the mind of of the psalmist David here. The way of blessedness is fully trusting in God and keeping His law. He says, no other deliverance is going to do. I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to obey you. I'm going to find that there is blessedness beyond anything that I could manufacture or anything that I could imagine if I would just simply stand still and let God move in this situation. That I would be obedient to Him. That I would allow Him to deliver me. And that is the salvation in which I long for. You notice in verse 81, it's not some sort of foreign concept in which he is clinging to. He's clinging to a Lord who has proved himself to be faithful time and time again, but he is also putting his hope in the surety of God's Word. That's the second part of verse 81. We first see that the psalmist David says we can't cast our longing for salvation to anything else but our God. But then the second part of 81 is that there is a hope that is sure in God's Word only. There's a hope that's sure in God's Word only. Throughout this stanza, the psalmist David begins to really compare and contrast his Word, talking about God's Word, with the Word of his persecutors with the words of his enemies you look at verse 85 the insolent have dug pitfalls for me they talking about the insolent talking about his enemies do not live according to your law in verse 86 he says all your commandments are sure O lord but they persecute me with falsehood i need your help or help me And so you see, don't you, how he's saying they're spewing lies, but your word is truth. They're spewing falsehood, but your word is sure. Your word is my hope. Your word is faithful. You know, the Lord Jesus said himself in John chapter 17 that we must be sanctified by the truth. Your word is true. Your word is the truth. And so the psalmist David seems to plant his flag right there. He says, I hope in your word, not in their words, 
Not in any other word, but I hope in your word. And I think about that hymn that we love here so well. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. The first stanza says, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Well, where do we see Jesus? Where do we see Jesus as He is revealed to us? Well, we see Him in the Word. And so in verse 3 of that same hymn, it says, His Word shall not fail you, He promised. Believe Him and all will be well. That is a glorious point that the Word of God will not fail you, that it will hold up to you Christ who has humbly submitted Himself to the hard providences, the hard sovereignty of God. And He has seen that the promises of salvation are sure within the Heavenly Father. And so the psalmist David says, if we're going to submit ourselves to God in affliction, in suffering, in trial, and in persecution, we must find a hope in God's Word only. And he says, in God's Word, verse 82, my eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? Here it is that that the psalmist David, remember this is a psalm. This is a song that he has written all about the Word of God. He says, I need your Word. I hope in your Word. And in it, my eyes see your promises. And in it, I ask, when will you comfort me? Well, I will comfort you, the Lord is saying, by my Word. His soul, his spiritual eyes, you might say, are fixed on one thing. And those are the promises of God as they are revealed to the believer in their Bible. David's faith is on God's promises. And he finds those promises in his Lord's Word. And now... The promises of God impact his prayer life, and he is able to remember the promises of God and plead them to the plead them back to God. He's he's able to submit himself to the hard sovereignty, the hard providences of God, because he knows that affliction and trial, even though they might abound now, will not always abound. He focuses upon the promises of God, which say very clearly that our persecution, that our trials, that our afflictions will only be for a season. But even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, our Lord is with us and He is at work in us. That He is, all, he is working all things out for the glory of His name, the good of His people. You know, each and every... Uh, I guess the end of the summer, maybe, the beginning of fall. We usually have uh, our college dinner. We had a college breakfast, actually, this year. And, and each and every year, at least since I've been here, the Pat Barker Sunday School class gives out that little checkbook of faith, which is a collection of, of Bible promises to believers. 
And so being kind of guided by that little checkbook of faith that I've held on to for so many years as the Pat Barker class gave me one even 13, 12, 13 years ago. I decided every time I read my Bible here in my office Monday through Thursday, I'm going to, I'm going to write out the promises of God that have been revealed to me in that portion of text. Three or four chapters. I'm going to write each and every one of them out so that I can meditate on them, so that I can recite them, so that maybe I can even memorize them, ultimately so that I might pray them back to God. You know, our Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know what you can do with that? You can say, Lord, you told me that you would never leave me nor forsake me. So I'm pleading that promise to you. I'm asking that you would not leave me nor forsake me. And that's very important in the Christian life. Sometimes, often, we feel like we will never escape a hard circumstance, a hard situation. We, we feel like we'll never escape these hard sufferings, these hard providences of the Lord. Well, if we know the promises of God, we can say, Lord, You told me. You have proclaimed in Your Word that these will only be for a season. Lord, let me see how Your hand is at work in bringing about an end to this suffering. Lord, You promise me that You are working in the midst of my hard circumstances. Show me how You've been working. Lord, You told me that You would sanctify me, that You would enable me to put to death sin in my life and pursue Christ's likeness. Lord, do it. I want to be free from this sin that holds me so tightly. Lord, do what You have promised. That's how our prayers should be. You know, we often say something like, well, I don't know how to pray in hard circumstances. I don't know what to pray for in hard circumstances. Simply pray what the psalmist David prays here. My eyes long for Your promise. My eyes of faith know what You have said, what You have declared in Your Word. And so, Lord, I'm I'm calling out to You. Prove Yourself to be faithful yet again. That's what the psalmist David's doing. He knows that the Lord is going to be faithful because the Lord has been faithful in the past. But you notice here, in the midst of His suffering, in the midst of His anguish, in the midst of His persecution, He says, Lord, I want to see it yet again. I want to see it yet again. And then as he pleads back the promises of God, the last thing I want you to see here is that he submits himself to the, the steadfast love, the loving kindness of his God. Look at verse 88. In your steadfast love give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Now I'm not sure exactly why the ESV translates it here steadfast love if you were to read the original hebrew in which david writes it literally translates as loving kindness i love that word loving kindness not only does it point us to jesus that in his loving kindness he has sacrificed himself on a cross that he has risen from the grave that he has 
ascended to glory so that He might show that loving kindness to all who believe upon Him. But this loving kindness of the Lord from Genesis to Revelation is is really a declaration of, of covenant promises. Of covenant promises that that He has, the Lord has, proved Himself to be faithful to His promises, to His covenants from the beginning to the end in Christ Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the yes and amen of God's Word. And so what you see here in verse 88, what you see the psalmist doing here is he's saying, you know, Lord, Your loving kindness... And read this with New Testament lenses. Your loving kindness that has been revealed to me in the Lord Jesus Christ is better than anything else in life. And I don't want to accept anything less than your loving kindness as it's revealed to me in Christ Jesus. In your steadfast love, give me life. What the psalmist David understands is that there is nothing in this world that can compare to the love and the friendship of God. You understand that, right? That in the loving kindness of God, as He has revealed to us His mercy, His grace, in the person and work of Christ Jesus, we are no longer enemies of God when we believe upon Him, but now we are friends of God. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. What a friend we have in Jesus is what we continue to sing hymn after hymn with even in the life of this church. It's a gospel reminder that nothing else in this world matters. The only thing that might fulfill us, the only thing that might give us life is the loving kindness, the steadfast love of our Lord. And you know, that's so countercultural. We need to... We need to testify to this. We need to proclaim this to a lost and dying world around us. Because the world, the society in which we live, the culture says that there are thousands of delights that we need to fill ourselves with. And they will bring us fulfillment. They will bring us joy. They will bring us life. If you will drink from the world to the full, you might have a delightful time. And yet what the psalmist David here says, there is no life apart from the loving kindness of God as He has revealed to us in Christ Jesus. One of the great Puritans says that we must understand this love and friendship of God, quote, that in all of your life you have never breathed life into your lungs like you have breathed it when you are tasting and seeing that the Lord Himself is good. When you understand, when you taste and see that the Lord Himself is good, everything else tastes bitter. Everything else looks bleak. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying that in your steadfast love, in your loving kindness, God, give me life. That's what I want. That's what I need. I don't want any trinket of the world. I don't want anything this world has to offer. I don't want any sort of substitute 
I don't want any temporary band-aid. That's not going to give me what I need. I need life, and only your loving kindness can give me life. And so he submits himself to that. You notice at the latter half of verse 88, he's asking for life. Why? So that he might keep the testimonies of the Lord's mouth. So that he might obey his God. If you look at verse 83, he says, I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. That's a graphic picture, isn't it? He's saying, Lord, I'm all dried up and shriveled. I can't endure. That's what he says in verse 84. There's pits around me everywhere. That's what he says in verse 85. He's persecuted by his enemies. That's what he says in 86. He's almost come to the end of his life. That's what he says in verse 87. But then in verse 88, he says, I desire life so that I might walk close with Jesus. Isn't that a a beautiful picture? That the psalmist, he he looks into the deliverance of God's salvation. He he hopes in God's word. He, He prays and he pleads back the promises of God. He trusts in God's promises as they are revealed to him in his word, in his Bible. He looks for life in God's loving kindness and he, and he simply hangs on. That, that's what is being declared here. In the midst of our suffering, we submit ourselves to God's will and we hang on. If you'll take your Bibles and let's look to the, the New Testament, there's a great picture of this in John chapter 6. It will become so much more clear if you would just look at chapter 6. John chapter 6. If you'll just glance through as I read these subtitles of these sections. Chapter 6 is an amazing chapter of God's Word because it begins with Jesus feeding the 5,000. Jesus walking on water. Jesus declaring to us, I am the bread of life and anyone who eats from me will never hunger again. He even gives us in verses 60 through the end of the chapter... The words of eternal life. He begins to preach to us the gospel. And immediately, what we see in verses 68 through 69 is that as he declares himself to be the way, the truth, and the life, the singular way to the Father, people begin to depart from him. People begin to scold him, to turn their back upon him. And so, what you see in verse 66, it says, After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. What what has happened? They've been fed by Jesus. They've seen Him walking on water. They've heard about this grand miracle. And yet when Jesus begins to preach, they're going, listen, I don't want any part of that. I want you to meet my needs, but I don't want you, is essentially what all these who have turned their back have said. That's not the psalmist's posture in Psalm 119, verses 81 through 88. He says, I want, I want you, Jesus, and all the good things you can do for me. I want you, Jesus. That's primary. And then I know that you'll be faithful. And in verses 68 and 69, Simon Peter, when Jesus speaks to the twelve, he says, Do you want to go away as well? Look how Simon Peter responds in 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
and when we have believed and have come to know that You are the Holy One of God. You see, that is the posture of the psalmist David. He, he says, along with Peter, even in the midst of hard circumstances, what are the hard circumstances for the disciples right now? The hard circumstances for the disciples is they were on cloud nine. Everybody was following Jesus. Thousands and thousands and thousands. He had just fed 5,000 men and all of their wives and children. He has done miracle after miracle. They're on cloud nine and all of a sudden no one else is following but the twelve. And here it is. As Jesus speaks to these twelve, Peter says, I don't have anywhere else to go. I don't want to go anywhere else. I don't want anyone else. Jesus, You alone have the words to eternal life. I believe, we believe, I know, we know that You are the Christ, the Holy One of God. And only through this Holy One of God can we be assured of life. That's what Peter says here in John chapter 6. This is what... The the psalmist David says in Psalm 119 that in our suffering, in our anguish, in our persecution, we must look upon Jesus. We must trust Him and hope in Him as He is revealed to us in His Word and hold on. Because the Lord will do far beyond more than we can ask or imagine. How do we submit to God in the afflictions and trials of life? You trust in Christ. You hope in His Word. And you hold on. That's how. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we do thank You for the opportunity to come to Your Word. And we pray, Lord, that it would be sweet to us. That it would convict us where it ought to convict us. That it would encourage us where it ought to encourage us. Let us look to Thee, the author and finisher of our faith, and let us be changed by Your Word. Let us hope in Your Word so that when the trials come, we pray that we would be a house that's built upon the solid foundation of the rock. As the psalmist David says, let us plead for You to give us life so that we might do Your Word, so that we might obey and walk close with Thee. We pray these things in Your Son's name. Amen.